Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you how it, how it happened. We used to, we gave money, we gave grants to people who needed help. And one of the questions we had on the application was, is there someone we could call who could tell us, help us understand what you really need? Because a lot of people didn't even know what they really needed or wanted. They just sort of wanted some money. So I called some uh, someone's case manager once, and she said, to tell you the truth, what he really needs is a friend. That really resonated with me, and I took it back to what at the time was my board of advisors to make financial grants and said, hey, what about this? What if we had a place where people could make friends? And that was sort of the germ of the idea. That was today's guest, David Kremples, the founder of the David Kremples Brain Injury Center. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. And you are listening to Flourishing in the World, a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life. In this podcast, David shares his story of surviving a traumatic brain injury and finding his way to recovery and eventually founding the Kremples Brain Injury Center to help other people who have suffered an acquired brain injury to discover who they are as a brain injury survivor. I think David's story of seeking to make a difference is a powerful lesson about human flourishing and living a worthy life. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening, or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is David Kremples. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much. I am honored that you're having me. So um, we're going to be talking today about uh, the David Kremples Brain Injury Center. And so listeners have kind of an anchor as to our discussion. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the organization first and then talk about and then get into um, how you came to found it and kind of what your vision was and your experience of, of both being a founder and leader of the organization. So, um, so I thought I'd start by just reading a couple of sentences from the website, and then we can talk a little bit about what that all means. So uh, KBIC, the David Kremples Brain Injury Center, is a nonprofit organization located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that offers in-person and online post-rehab community-based programming to survivors of acquired brain injury. Our member-centric model offers survivors choice and control when participating in ongoing therapeutic opportunities in support of their individual goals with no forced end date, no attendance requirements, and no pressure. So that's kind of a quick uh, intro, but what is KBIC? That sounds pretty good, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, KBIC is... For me, the key word in it is center. It is a place where survivors of brain injury can come together and do stuff. So there are all these things about therapeutic and evidence-based and all of this stuff. We are not medical. We are not uh, therapy, treatment. We are a community. And as I see it, we are a physical community where people come together 
support each other, and they learn a lot of stuff, which is therapeutic. But to me, it's primarily, first of all, um, a social connection, sort of a spiritual connection almost. People are not alone. They are together at the center, and that's what it means to me. All right. So we're going to come back to to your relationship uh, with the center, and it is inextricably uh, connected to your story. So I'd like to start uh, by talking a little bit about your background. So are you from originally from the Portsmouth area? Um, I am not. My father was a minister. Oh. Evangelical, if you can believe it, Pentecostal Assemblies of God, which is pretty heavy-duty stuff. Consequently, because he's a minister, we moved about every three years. So I was born in Pennsylvania, lived in Pennsylvania two or three times in my life, but moved about every three years, uh, twice in Winnipeg, Canada, once in Maryland, once last in New Jersey. And I came to UNH in 1970 with this fantasy about New England, having never really been to New England. <laughs> and I just found my home. I had, yeah. lived around, I had moved every few years. I found my home in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And here I am. God, is it 50 years later, 55? A lot of years later. Um, I am a New Englander. So you went to UNH. What did you study? Yeah, I studied political science. All right. And uh, God, we're talking late 60s. Ah, the world was on fire, uh, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and protest, and boycott classes, Um you know, explain this to me. You're paying high tuition and you threaten them, well, I'm not going to go to class yeah. because you don't like the policy of the administration, perhaps in regard to the war. Um, a lot of, it was really the Vietnam War. We were, we were military age and we were scared. And um, there was the war, there were civil rights, there were all these anti-establishment things. So I grew up right at that time, and I was very suggestible, political science, uh, I'm going to go out there and save the world. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do something that that's going to fix this mess. Yeah. And in fact, I was not a good student. I was not in, in any way, any, okay. any sort of exceptional person who was going to do anything. But... Um, that's why it was political science. And I I used to say a bachelor's degree in political science qualifies you for one of two career choices. One, go to law school. Two, become a carpenter. Okay. I was a good carpenter. <laughs> so, so you did. In fact, you became a builder. I did. I did. How did that happen? Well, how did that happen? Uh, Again, it was this this whole anti-establishment thing, which I took very seriously. And the people I really admired were the hippie carpenters who hung around the university and worked with their hands. I really admired that. 
got a job with a building contractor and wow i found out i was pretty good i liked swinging a hammer i liked throwing lumber around i liked seeing buildings come up and i just really liked it and i um was fairly good and and gradually started my own business and and sort of went with it so that's how that happened yeah yeah and um you are you you're, so reading from your bio that that's on the KBIC website. You talked about being active in sports, my church, community. You had just gotten married uh, in the early '90s, and uh, a quote that we were talking about before before we started recording that I took from your uh, from your bio was was this: I had been brought up to believe that I should do something good and important with my life. So I was hoping you might comment on that. You've kind of alluded to it a little bit with your choice of political science, and you're going to make yeah, a difference. Yeah. Um, my parents, I'm probably going to, when I talk, I refer to my parents. They had a tremendous impact on me. My father was a powerful man, a remarkable man. As, um, as I got older, I found that I disagreed with him on a whole lot of stuff, theologically and other things. However, they did not care about money. They did not encourage me to make money, to be financially successful. They encouraged me to, to do God's will, to do good work, to do God's work. And um, as I got older, went to the university, my theology changed. My belief in God was not their God anymore. But I, I retained that feeling that I was supposed to do something good, something more important than making money, and um, an expression that, that I really love, that really matters to me, is making a difference. I felt that I should make a difference in the world in some way. No, I was a builder. I was a good builder. I was fair. I was honest. I delivered a good product. Eh, you know, I wasn't changing anyone's life. Um, so there was probably always a bit of a nagging void as far as if you want this meaning or what am I really doing. And if if I if I translate this or or read this forward into starting the Krempel Center of the organization. When I found that I had some money, right from the very start, before I even had any idea how much it would be, I, I was working with my attorneys on figuring out what I needed to live and all this stuff. We were talking, thinking about trying to do a settlement, which the other side, by the way, did not want to do. They were not interested in settlement. They said a Maine jury won't give you much. It was uh, tried in the. It was in the state of Maine, but we're trying to figure out a settlement of expenses and all this stuff. And I put in a figure there: fifty thousand dollars to do something good. Fifty thousand dollars to, I don't know what, but to you know, there it was my tithe, if you will. And when this all came together, I. Another expression I use, I considered it my assignment. Uh, I, 
I got a bunch of money, and I didn't need a bunch of money. I needed some. There are a whole lot of people who I came into contact with who had serious brain injury with, with more lasting deficits than I have who had nothing coming out at the other end. And um, I understood something about what it was like to be really broke and really scared. And I was in a position that I could help. So that's sort of how that happened. Yeah. So let's, um, we get ahead of our story a little bit, but let's, let's, okay. let's, let's, uh, let's, let's Hold talk about, no, 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 no. I, I think this is good. So, so you had a good life going. You were success. Sounds like you were pretty materially successful. A lot of good stuff happening. And you alluded now to you had an accident. So yeah. maybe talk a little. Let's let's talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah, I had a good life. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was I was comfortable, and I was I would say I was pretty happy. I was pretty pretty well grounded in the community. Um, we were talking earlier about playing sports and maybe remembering ourselves as better than we That's were. That's right. <laughs> okay. I like to think I was this great stud athlete. Well, you know, I was okay. I was okay. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the people I used to play with are now in their 70s and not playing anyway. Yeah. So that's not a well, huge They're all remembering themselves. Yeah. <laughs> we, were all, we were all we above were average. All, we, were, <laughs> we, we, we were phenoms. Yeah. Um, okay. Personal relationships were not my forte. I had lots of girlfriends. Um, I don't know. I couldn't, I didn't, couldn't really, I guess I couldn't really trust myself, couldn't really trust the woman. And finally, it just really worked out where I could really let go and be myself. Uh, her name was Etta May, and uh, uh, we got married which in itself was scary, but we got married. And um, How long did you date before you got married? Uh, about two years. Yeah. Yeah. She had a son who, when we got married, was 12. Um, they, I actually owned a duplex in Newmarket, and she became a tenant on the other side. And gradually she and her son and I became a family although we lived separately it was a family and it was it was really pretty cool so somewhere along the way i figured out i told her i like my life better with you than without you that's nice will you get married will you marry me and she said you know i will um some friends bought us a uh, weekend at a bed and breakfast in a gunkwood we loved Agonquid Beach. We would go there on Sunday afternoons and go out in the freezing water. We just loved it there. So that was a special place for us. I don't know. We spent a day there, I guess, and uh, I guess it was uh, Monday we were leaving. I know we were going to the Portland Museum of Art, which we also like to do, and um, we had a couple of days before we were both going back to work. So we're out on the main turnpike, and um, traffic came to a stop for construction. And we stopped, and there was a tractor trailer behind us that did not stop. Accident reconstruction showed that he hit his brakes 
60 feet after he hit our car. And uh, my wife was killed. My wife was killed. Um, I was really severely injured. Mm, main medical intensive care, life or death. Um, trach G-tube. And um, so I was a main med for seven weeks and uh, released to a brain injury rehab place in Dover. At the time, it was called Hill Haven Head Injury Treatment Program, which is a mouthful. And now it's just Dover Rehab. Um, and that's actually my very, very first memory was I was taken from Maine Med to Dover Rehab in an ambulance. I don't remember any of any of that, Maine Med, anything. When I got to Dover Rehab, I couldn't, I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand up, and I was impulsive and sort of angry so that I had to be watched and or strapped down. Well, they wheeled me in and apparently forgot about me, and I tried to get up and fell on my face and that's my first memory after my oh, wow. after my injury. Um, taken to Wentworth Douglas Hospital with for uh, CAT scans to see if I did further damage, and then I uh, came back and uh, the whole thing. I laugh at it now. My parents had been up here visiting me in the hospital in Maine, and they knew I was now being transferred to Dover, and they came to Dover to see me. And the case manager had to tell them that, oh, he fell on his face. He's in the hospital. So that was, that was not a That probably didn't go over well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So, so what was recovery like? What was recovery? Um, I mean, boy, you sort of, you sort of find, I find myself in a room and it says, I'm at the Hillhaven Head Injury Treatment Program. I have a serious brain injury. Um, it tells people not to give me anything to eat or drink because I can't swallow. And um, it it was it was shocking. It was shocking. Rehab for me. Uh, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. So physical therapy. Uh, they worked with my legs got me from a wheelchair to a walker. Wheelchair to a walker was so exciting. Stood up from that wheelchair and held the walker and took a few steps. It was like euphoria. And then walker to cane and then uh, let everything go and there were rails on the hallway that you could hang on to. But it was a euphoria to be able to do that stuff. Um, but were, then, you, were like, you afraid that you may not be able to walk? I mean, oh, I it? didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that was my biggest fear. Yeah. Will I be able to walk again? And I remember asking my neurologist, will I be able to walk again? And he said, it's hard to say every brain injury is different, which I really don't want to hear. Every brain injury is different. Am I going to walk or not? You know? Yeah, yeah. He also said we base it on how you're doing so far, and I can tell you you're doing pretty well. Well, I thought I was doing terrible, 
But but he was absolutely right. I mean, there are people who are never going to walk out of there. I couldn't swallow. So speech therapy, uh, they say everything from the neck up. Part of it is swallowing. And I learned, you know, you've got, yeah, it's a motor thing, really. You've got all these muscles, and I say flaps and trap doors, <laughs> and everything's got to be coordinated so it goes. And it's a, it's a motor thing which my brain didn't quite know how to do. So they taught me to do a chin tuck, keep your chin down, let it all come into there, get ready for it, and then you put your head back, and it goes down. It was, it was again, it was euphoric to be able to do that. Occupational therapy was part of it, and that... I thought it was supposed to be my occupation, my work. I'm a carpenter. When when do we get the hammer and nails? But occupational therapy, what it really means is what you do to occupy yourself. And it's like ADLs. It's how you take care of yourself during the day. Uh, the most useful thing they taught me was to use a daytimer and write stuff down. Because I had no idea when I was doing what. And at that time, my memory was absolutely useless daytimer TR therapeutic recreation I really hated it she wanted me to like throw these bean bags and stuff which like play these little childish games I thought but she taught me to ride to use the coast bus system and that was a really that was a really valuable uh, valuable skill to have so recovery uh, boy well, let me let me insert this. Um, you in your bio, uh, you say you were confused, angry, crippled, and heartbroken. You say I desperately tried to cling to the life I had known, but over the course of two agonizing years, I slowly realized that I was never going to be that person again. Okay. So, how did you come through that? Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, at First, I thought, okay, I'll just work a little harder and I will get this stuff back. Physically, I have a little right-sided neglect, they call it, a little right-sided. And my balance and coordination are not good. And, I mean, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. But I can't run around on floor joists and throw. I can't do what I used to do. And, it, and no matter how much I worked at it, it wasn't going to happen. Um, At what point did you realize that? Boy, it was about two years. Uh, I would I I would go to practices with my softball team, and you know I could catch a ball. I couldn't really throw it. I couldn't run. I couldn't do anything. And I assumed I was gonna I was gonna be back. Well, I'm not gonna be back. That was that was the painful thing for me was was realizing that that no, you're not going to be that guy again. And people would tell me, oh, Dave, you're doing great. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Well, no. Yeah, I was doing great, but I'm not, I was not going to be that again. And um, that was painful. Yeah. So you talked about your therapists, and you said they acknowledged my losses and helped me grieve. They also insisted against my protest that my life could be good again. And they were right. Yeah. Yeah, they would tell me that, and I would say, nah, 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 nah. At first, okay, my emotions were very childlike. 
frontal lobe brain injury, uh, disinhibition. Um, I was very childlike. I cried easily and I would laugh uncontrollably at stupid little things. I mean, painfully, maybe going to a 10-minute laughing spell. Sort of like a five-year-old when someone farts. That's what I called it. The farting in church syndrome. It was like, ooh, the funniest thing I've ever seen. It was tremendously embarrassing, but I just couldn't help it. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So what's my point? My emotions were childlike, and I could not imagine being happy again. Could not imagine. And I would tell them, no, it's not going to happen. Um, boy. Somehow it did. I, yeah. you know, I have a good life. I did marry again, and I, I dated for a while. It was, it was. I can't, I, I can't tell you how sad and depressing it was to have lost my wife. And for can only imagine. Yeah. For. The first year or two years, it's really all I thought about. And then it started to be, well, wait a minute, I also lost myself. You know, there's another big loss here. Yeah. Um, I was lucky. There were, some, there were some women who wanted to go out with me. There were some women that didn't want to go out with me. <laughs> some I always found change. those numbers exceeded <laughs> the other ones, but myself, but, you know. <laughs> Luckily, uh, find one. Yeah, That's all we yeah. need, right? And I was shameless. I was shameless. If I was at a restaurant and I had a, we had an attractive waitress, bang, I would be hitting on her. I was shameless. I, I'm embarrassed now, but um, I... That was sort of that childlike thing without... Okay. Without having the the good sense that no, you don't do that. Yeah, she doesn't want to hear this bullshit. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, that's the executive function, right? That's the frontal yeah, cortex, frontal yeah, lobe yeah. Uh, damage. That's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. Um, it is. Knowing um, when to bite your tongue. <laughs> yeah, there's something called pseudo bulbar affect. All right, that okay, I don't know. What, what is that? That's go. a good one. But that's what we're talking about. That's <laughs> that's the inability con to control your emotions, laughing and crying. Okay. And I learned that from my neurologist, who was a member of the board of the organization when I finally got things going. Yeah. And in a board meeting, I started laughing one time. It was, oh, it was horribly embarrassing. But you I couldn't, couldn't stop. stop. Yeah. And I left, and then he explained to all of us about pseudobulbar affect. Pseudobulbar affect. Okay, I'm going to have to try to use that in a okay. sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, did, when did things, so, so you, you, you said these, you know, therapists helped you and, you, and you say, you know, little by little, I began to replace missing fragments of that shattered life with something new. When did you, when did it start to change? So, so you, somewhere along there, you yeah. met your wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, but that, was she, that I later? Met, or was I that her like, God, I met her in eight, 1999. So seven years later. Seven years later. Had, you know, I had, I had some sort of girlfriend-like relationships in there, but nothing that was really going to do anything. I, I don't know. Uh, one of the things I keep thinking about, I, I did... Uh, Pre-accident, I did aerobics, okay? Now, we're talking the uh, 90s when yeah. dance music, I mean, uh -huh. you know, working like crazy, sweating like crazy. 
Well, after my accident, I couldn't do that stuff. Sure. But there's low-impact aerobics, which tends to be an older crowd, which was more appropriate for me. And there were, I went to a low-impact class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning at 10 o'clock for several years. And somewhere along the way, if you can imagine this, you've got all this music and you're doing all this stuff, and then at the end you have a cool down and the lights get dimmed and the music changes and sort of, you know, the instructor says some nice words and you... The music this my favorite instructor chose at this time was What a Wonderful World. Yeah. Louis Armstrong, uh, yeah. yeah, great song. Yeah. And I'm saying, hmm, boy, boy, I don't know, hmm. And then I sort of, one time in a class, I just sort of let myself go and said, yeah, you know, and it was like, that was a really big deal. I met my wife at a dinner match. This was pre-websites. Um, so no Tinder. No, no Tinder, no nothing, no, no, no nothing. Match.com. You know, you're right. No, you could <laughs> put an ad in the newspaper, but yeah, whatever. Uh, there's a woman at the Exeter Inn. She had this thing called Dinner Match, and men and women would write to her on a piece of paper. And she would have seven men and seven women of appropriate demographics at a dinner. Uh, and you come in, you sit at a big family-style table with assigned seating. And halfway through, she would change the men so that everyone in the course of dinner talked to everyone. I did it once and absolutely hated it. Um, this was like five or six years after my accident. And I was getting really lonely and really depressed. And I did it again. And in the course of dinner, I talked to just about everyone except that woman way down there on the other side. And at dessert, we stood up at the table and did dessert. And I started talking to her. And uh, her name's Mary. And I was like, bang. Honestly, I don't necessarily believe in love in first sight, but it was. I, I was head over heels. She was, let's say, less smitten. <laughs> and uh, she told me she had a boyfriend, but if it was, shit, it's on again, off again. If it was good, I probably wouldn't be here. So that's fair. That's yeah, yeah. that's fair. That's a good point. Uh, but over a period of months, uh, we really came together and. Uh, she has changed my life. Her name's Mary. I refer to her as the greatest wife in the history of the universe. And you could look it up, I say. So when I really, when I really started to turn the corner. It was with Mary. Yeah. Now, in January 1995, so this is two and a half years after my accident, I had a trial. It was a. It was not a settlement. It was a one-month jury trial. Wow! In federal court in Portland, Maine, and the reason for the trial was not that I had done anything, but there was a truck driver, and they rented trucks from Ryder Truck, 
and the main turnpike doing construction didn't have good signage. So the trial was really about, well, whose fault was it? Was it the truck driver or the main turnpike? Oh, okay. Okay. And over Not you. you right. It was no, never a question. I was never. Yeah. Then there's the question of, well, how bad is he and what, you know, how oh, okay. much, how much, we're gonna how much pay. damage, right? Yeah, yeah. Damages, right. So liability and damages. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty horrible, horrible time for me. Uh, in the two years after my accident, I worked as hard as I could to get as much better as I could. And they, the other side, the defendants, I call them the bad guys, good guys, bad guys, they would have expert um, examiners. I would have to visit their expert examiners. So I, I kind of understood that I want to be as much better as I can, but I'm, but I'm hurting myself in their eyes. To my lawyer's credit, he never, ever tried to hold me back. He just said, you know, be as good as you can be. And as it turned out, the jury liked us. The jury, the judge liked us, Judge Carter. He was considered a hard ass. He liked us. And the other side, I, they, we came out looking good and we got... I'm not going to say numbers, but we were going to. We wanted to make a settle. They didn't want to settle. We got more than three times as much as we would have settled for. Well, and I'm talking, you know, like we've got a lot of zeros at the end of that. So that my lawyer said to me, the purpose of this is to make it up to you. And I remember I would cry and say, "Well, nothing's going to make it up to me." Well, damn, it sure as hell helped. It sure <laughs> helped. It yeah. helped. Yeah. All of a sudden, I didn't have to worry, and... Well, this was two and a half years later. Yeah. So from 92 to 95, how were you getting by? How was I getting by? I was barely getting by. I got first... Oh, God. I mean, your medical expenses must have been... My medical Astronomical. Yeah, they, that was all liens against my house. So the bank owned everything. Um, I initially... I, I had almost nothing. I spent down savings. I had almost nothing. My worst day, I had literally no money, no food. I would go to my cupboards where I kept my cereal and crackers. Nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. I was freaking out. A friend stopped by to visit me, and I told her, and she took $150 out of her uh, ATM which got me past the weekend. Now, if I, I could have asked people, I have friends, I could have asked my family. It didn't occur to me that I could ask them. All I knew was I'm broke. And um, after a while, probably the last year, I got a social security, I don't know what it was, a disability, some sort of thing. First I was denied and then appealed and it took a long time. So I was really, really, really broke, which is why when I first had money, what I wanted to do was make, was give money to people who really needed it. Yeah. Because that's what I knew, this financial desperation. So you, you got this settlement in 95 and, 
And that's what you did. You started, so you started a brain injury support fund. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it went through a lot of name changes because I, you know, I had friends who were helping me, and and God, they helped me so much. It was first the 2001 emergency fund, okay. And what it did was it really followed my echoed my my personal experience. And the first thing was emergency, yeah. so financial emergency because of brain injury. Then it was uh, support. Then it was a transition fund. Then it was Crimple's Foundation. Don't ask me where that came from. We had a strategic planning retreat, and someone suggested that name. So, okay, well, we thought that was cool. So you had a group of folks working. You were an official um, right, a nonprofit at that point. Right. We were, we were changing from... Uh, what is it, private nonprofit to a publicly supported charity. Okay. Right at that point. And so there was a lot of branding changes every couple of years. We got brain injury to the name Crimple Brain Injury Foundation. And then we started this program, Stepping Stones, which is the day program. But you were telling me a little story of how that came about before we started recording. You were invited here to UNH to speak, I think, was... Oh, yeah, right. Back when I first had my accident, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to do something other than be a builder. So I came to UNH, and I took a course. Uh, the first course I took was social work, and I think it depressed me more than helped me. <laughs> <laughs> but because we, I we love the, our social work colleagues, but yeah. Yeah, it's, no, that's, I know I agree. It's I do. Stuff. I love I love social workers really good to me. Um I took one of those aptitude one of those tests for uh I can't remember the name, uh, an organization that helps you find jobs. And I took these like uh, aptitude tests and it came out that that one of the things I would be good at is being a funeral director. That was sort of almost an insult to me at that point, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so I took this course and I registered with, there was an office at UNH called Access, which which helped people who had disabilities, helped them navigate the, the, the system, the education system. Mm. I registered there and uh, there was a... A, a professor of occupational therapy who uh, wanted someone to speak to her class and contacted the access office and the access office hooked her up with me. So I went and talked to her class and it was this really big deal for me. It was like, it was just this, I felt important and and it was just, a, it was such a big deal for me. Um they liked it. The professor liked it. She had me back the next year to do it again. And another professor who was in the department, Alice Seidel, who actually became chair of the department, she looked in and heard a couple of the presentations. And she was really interested in in this whole brain injury recovery thing. And then we as an organization... Well, I'll, t I'll tell you how, how it happened. We used to, we gave money. We gave grants to people who needed help. And one of the questions we had on the application was, 
Is there someone we could call who could tell us, help us understand what you really need? Because a lot of people didn't even know what they really needed or wanted. They just sort of wanted some money. So I called some uh, someone's case manager once, and she said, to tell you the truth, what he really needs is a friend. That really resonated with me, and I took it back to what at the time was my board of advisors to make financial grants and said, hey, what about this? What if we had a place where people could make friends? And that was sort of the germ of the idea. And we started pursuing it. Um, Alice Seidel, back to Alice Seidel, occupational therapy at UNH, she thought it was a great idea, and she wanted in on the planning sessions. And next thing you know, she was proposing bringing OT interns to this program, and it just developed into this magical connection. At our at our height, we had 15 interns a day, three days a week. So that's like 45 a semester times two times eight or 10 years. You know, we're talking literally thousands of interns who experienced the program as part of their education. And um, what they gave us was just, just phenomenal and irreplaceable. But what they got was also, it was a, totally a win-win. Um, and then it also involved Tufts and uh, uh, just, I don't know, something like 15 or 17 colleges in the area. Um, we've had interns from and continue to to this day. So you had this conversation with a case manager and said, what this guy needs is a friend. So you, so you initiated, so had you initiated kind of a community, what, community drop-in or something for the, for people with brain injury prior to the stepping stones or was it no, all no, kind of one, all at once? No. It was all. That was all at once. We okay. also had, um, I went to um, a support group and met once a month in Northampton uh, Brain Injury Association Support Group once a month. And for some of those people, that was the one night a month. One night a month they got to go out and be with other people who sort of understood their situation. Someone said, "Can't we? why can't we do this more than once a month? So these things were sort of feeding this germ um, the mother of, of one of our group members said that her uh, highest on her wish list was a, um, uh, what do you call it, a, a clubhouse program. A clubhouse is a model, and we're not exactly a clubhouse, but it's a place where people can go during the day. So these germs were being uh, seeded, if that's the expression. And another another thing honestly that it, that influenced me a lot there is a guy who boy he's 20 years younger than I am he was in a car accident I think it was on his 18th birthday and I asked him about it he said indicating that he was getting high on a joint he is like He's like disabled to the point that he's in a wheelchair. He can't really talk. He sort of tries to grunt some sounds. 
I can communicate with him. He uses an alphabet board and he'll spell out the words and get it started. And uh, he points to his eye to say I and to his head to say think. And he uses two fingers to say two, like I think you should, you know. Mm -hmm. He's sort of partially sign language, but I took a liking to him and he broke my heart. He broke my heart. Um, I started to pick him up. He lived in a disabled housing for disabled people. I would pick him up on support group nights, one night a month, get a wheelchair, put it in the trunk of my car. And it was a big deal. It was a really big deal for him and it was for me too. So these things were sort of nudging me toward, you know, we got to get people together. People need to be together. And um, one of the things I say a lot and we say a lot, we brain injury survivors, is in the beginning you get a lot of attention and gradually, you know, people have to get on with their lives. And after a while, you're kind of on your own. I can say that I'm really lucky. I had a couple of friends who were with me right from the start who stayed with me the whole way. I was really lucky. But for most, but even in my case, I mean, most of my friends had to go, went about their lives, which which had nothing to do with me. I was lucky that I was sort of developing this other life through this nonprofit and um, uh, Secos Hospice. Um, I went to a bereavement group, I don't know, probably the fall after my wife had been killed. I went to a bereavement group, which really uh, helped me a lot. And I was interested in facilitating a group uh, I did a training program with them, and in the pra- training program, I found that I cried a lot, and I wasn't really ready to be doing it. But after a few years, I started to facilitate grief groups for Seacoast Hospice, and I loved it. I loved it. I felt so. It felt so real, and there's such a there's such a connection. People are so naked and. It's it's very similar to me to the brain injury community. For a lot of us, our pretenses are stripped away, and we're just we're just right out there naked and real. And I really admire that. So what's my point? I guess my point in all that was that I was starting to do things that that made me feel important. That so I was starting to get a life back for myself. What did you learn about your, yourself, your, your own situation from the training and the experience you had with the bereavement group? The bereavement group? Yeah. God, you know, the most, oh boy, I learned some stuff. <laughs> ah, the most important thing I learned was how to listen. I thought that listening meant someone tell you, oh, I feel terrible when you say, well, you do this and you feel better. I thought it meant fixing. And in fact, it just means listening. Just let people talk. Just let people talk and cry and don't try to fix it. We do a lot of comparing. Oh, your situation's worse than mine. Your, your grief is, you know, worse than mine. And the director of bereavement used to say, 
everybody has a story. Everybody, everybody out there in the in the world has a story. We've all got stories. Some are more dramatic and tragic than others, but we've all got our story. And she used to say, everybody's grief is 100%. Everybody's pain, rather. Everyone's pain is 100%. So those kinds of things were helpful for me. And that helped you with your, in thinking about the what you wanted to do with, with the brain injury as well. Yeah, it did. It did. I was really torn initially between the hospice organization and brain injury. I was okay. really torn and, yeah. and trying to think which way do I want my... Two big traumas that you have. Yeah, yeah, life. exactly, I mean, like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it was sort of like going to be one or the other. And then um, I found the Brain Injury Association of New Hampshire worked with me really well in the early years as far as making grants to individuals. We couldn't make the grants to individuals. We could make the grant to a publicly supported nonprofit, which was the Brain Injury Association. Okay. We could make it to them and they could make it to the individuals. And they just made that all so easy and doable that it, it influenced me a lot. So you, so I'm hearing a couple of different things kind of coming together all at once. One was you are actively engaged in a support group network with, with the bereavement. You had this contact at UNH, uh, Alice Seidel, who was helping you think about what that program, a, a, mm -hmm. a, a program might look like. Um, and you'd been working, you know, you already had something kind of going. So, so. What did the early stages look like when you, when you first launched it as Stepping Stones? How many? It was three days a week right away? It was three days a week, and, it, and the program was really very similar to the, what it is now. Okay. We hired a consultant. We, the organization, the, the support fund, whatever it was, that was giving out, making grants, as we thought about doing this other thing, we hired a consultant to do a feasibility study. If we build it, will they come? And the answer was yes, they will come. And then to do an implementation grant. So she, she and the person we hired to be the director went around to a couple of places, uh, New Jersey and Long Island, I know. I don't know about anything else. Kind of look at programs that were up, and they came back with, with a model and put their own spin on it. But in a whole lot of ways, it it is what it is now. It's, it's more sophisticated. The infrastructure is stronger now. Um, but it hasn't changed a whole lot. Well, let's... Um Let's talk about what it, what does it look like? Like what, what's a, so you've got this three day a week program. Okay. What does that look like? What okay. does a day in the day at the center look like? The first thing is, um, at 10 o'clock, it's called community meeting and everybody comes together. The members who are going to participate in the day. And in some cases they have caregivers. Uh, student interns, some staff members, some volunteers. So everyone comes together as a group. Back in our zenith before COVID, 
that might be 35 members and with the other ancillary people, maybe 45 or 50 people at a community meeting. It was really a buzzing place. It's perhaps half of that now since COVID, uh, which is unfortunate and sad. But so you come together and, I don't know, there are announcements and presentations are made. There are going to be three groups in the morning, then lunch, three groups in the afternoon, um, hour-long groups. So a presentation is made for each of the three groups, and then members get to choose which of the three they want to go to. Um, and then the afternoon, same thing. Uh, so you go to community meeting, it's kind of see everyone, you get this nice buzz, you sort of start your day, and then you go off to a group where, oh boy, I'm, I always go to community meeting, I don't really go to groups, I don't know what they are, but they're like computer skills, uh, cooking class, me in memory, uh, aphasia support. Yeah. Uh, you know, um. There's a current events group usually. A current events, right. Current events is great. That's on Friday. Yeah. I like current events. There's stuff like that. Yeah. So these are like occupational therapy driven. Right. Oh, and there's one, uh, a fitness. There's usually a fitness, some sort of fitness or uh, movement group in the morning. Um, Yeah. So occupational therapists, uh, recreational therapists might be involved Mm -hmm. with that. And speech. Speech therapists. yeah, and then lunch, it used to be in a cafeteria, which was sort of, to me, it, it was sort of like a like a um, university uh, dining hall or a frat house dining hall. It was just a very collegial group of people laughing and having a good time. Uh, since COVID, we have, are not getting together quite as closely. And then groups in the afternoon and... A lot of times there'll be something like an art workshop after hours that some people will stay for. So all together, oh, and, and before the group starts, early comers do uh, coffee, coffee talk and uh, games and stuff like that. So you, some people come as early as 9 and go home at 2.30, say. Mm-hmm. The program itself is 10 to 2. So you, you kind of alluded to it, but... Why is it? Why does a program like this work well for brain injury survivors? Mm. Why? Why? Why this format? Why? Mm. Why does it work so well? Yeah. Um. Boy. I mean, what is it about brain injury that makes it kind of unique? I guess is what. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I th- think there's the uh, the expression the invisible uh, disability. Um, in some cases, people seem altogether fine, but they're not. But, uh, you know, a lot of our members don't seem that fine. A lot of our members have pretty apparent difficulties also. I guess, I think probably most disabilities, people people in groups would tend to feel um, community or connection with people of their I think probably a polio support group would feel very close to each other. So I'm not sure that brain injury is okay. Not per- unique in the sense, particularly of- unique in that sense. Okay. Yeah. 
One of the things that does happen is you had asked about rehab and post-rehab and what rehab involved. The point in rehab, the point comes with whatever the therapist is, where he or she says, okay, this is about what we can do. This is about it. This is about how far we can go. Got to release you. And the expression I use is, good luck, you're on your own. And that's very much the way it is. You've been told what to do. Your life has been controlled or at least influenced a lot by therapists, caregivers. uh, And all of a sudden, here you go. Good luck. It occurred to me, in fact, today that Krempel Center is the good luck. Here you go. Good luck. Hey, we're good luck. (laughs) It is a place you can go and And get some of what you still need. Yeah. 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 That's nice. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) So community. So so I take your point. Like anybody who has shared, you're going to have community. You're going to see community uh, with polio survivors or, or whatever. Why, why is that important hmm. Hmm. Um, in that post-rehab, the good luck, right? Yeah. Um, they're the people who understand. Yeah. Yeah. They're the people who understand. I, I, used to, I used to feel really weird with my various brain injury things, and I'd you know, be in a restaurant with a friend, and, and I'd feel like I'm watching a movie and all these people are doing this stuff, and... And I'm not really a part of, I'm sort of watching it, but I'm not part of it. And I would go to my brain injury support group and I didn't have to explain anything to anyone. People just knew. And there's something about people just knowing that that, um, it's very uh, reinforcing. Uh, That is, uh, so uh, I'm a... I hadn't mentioned I'm a board member at at KBIC and and I so I spent I've spent some time uh in you know participating in the program and that and then I've I've had a chance to talk to a lot of 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 members and that is the thing that I hear all the time is is that people understand me here mm-hmm. there's a sense of of community and the kind of going back to what you were saying like uh about the the brain injury support group that you that was only once mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I, having having the opportunity to go multiple times a week, and and have people understand who you are, I'm, and I think the invisible injury piece, as you said, like some of the some of the members, you you can tell that they've had some sort mm-hmm. of trauma, but a lot of have not. But you know, I meet I meet people who are former members who have kind of mm-hmm. feel like they've gra- you know graduated out of the out of the program um and i'm like i wouldn't have had any idea you'd had mm-hmm. a brain injury yeah. and a lot of them are like you had had a profession before their brain injury and had to find and and weren't able to continue with that mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. my sense is that the center provides that opportunity to process some of that loss and find that way forward mm-hmm. so I, I think the the organization does an incredible job with with you know makes a real difference in people's lives. Well, I, I you had at the end of your bio, you have your informal motto, mm-hmm. which is "You're not who you were, yep. be who you are." Yep. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that 
came out of, kind of organically came out of um, writing about who I was and um, acknowledging that things have changed and and sort of, you could almost kind of call it a sort of acceptance that, okay, things have changed. Yes, that's a fact. So you're not who you were, be who you are. And and it and it's not just accepting that you're not who you were. It's that, okay, who you are is something. It's something. Be that. Be who you are. It's not like less or better or less or, or worse or it's what you are now, so that's what you are. And be that. Not being very articulate here, but it's a two-part deal. You're not who you were. Okay, not easy to accept, but you accept it. So now what? Just going to not be who I was? No, I'm going to be. I'm going to be what I am. And uh, so that's what that means to me. Well, it's, I, I read that, and I, and I immediately went back to your comment that you'd been raised, that you had a responsibility mm. to do something mm. good and important mm -hmm. with your life. And so I, I mm -hmm. connect those two things together. Like, you still have this obligation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a really good point. Yeah, I called it my uh, to myself. I called it when I got a bunch of money, and I I sort of facetiously say when I got rich. I call this my assignment now. Okay, I have a bunch of money. Well, I have an assignment, and that is to do something good with it. So that's where I would say. I mean, that to me, reading your story, listening to you. You know, that would be a lesson that I take from your life and your philosophy, you know, is, is there's an obligation to do something good and important, mm -hmm. regardless of what your circumstances might have become. So, um, I think the, the work, you know, I, I think the work that you do, uh, you have done creating Kremples is, uh, the, the, the KBIC, the center. I mean, that just makes a huge impact. Hmm on uh, thousands of people's lives mm. at this point. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a, maybe not the thing you set out to do. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I'll tell you, I meet people who have been influenced by the center. I come across them every once in a while, and it just, it really, it just feels so good to know that, in fact, some lives are touched and some lives are touched for the benefit. And um, sort of goes back to what I said earlier that um, I benefit the most. When you give, you benefit the most, even more than the giver, more than the receiver. Yeah. David, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a, uh, I really appreciate you sharing your, your story and, um, and your journey. You're welcome, and thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Flourishing in the World. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening. Until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you. Mm -hmm.